0: not too long
1: ago, I saw this quote from a spokesman for the Federal Emergency Management Agency that made me sit up and pay attention. It was about the massive floods that swept through Montana in mid-June and the people whose homes had been damaged or destroyed. He
0: said it really well here where he says, I always tell people this is a tough line to tell people. Take responsibility for your own disaster recovery.
1: That's Ashley Nurbavig, a senior
0: political reporter for
1: MTN News in Montana. She's been covering the floods and the communities where people were
0: told not to wait on the federal government to come save them. Maybe at some point you will get money back from us, but it won't make you whole, um, which I think is like a very sensible approach from a spokesperson perspective. But then it goes back to the policymakers of, okay, so what are we saying to these people who uh, had no reason to think that their homes were going to get flooded, that this is on them, sort of?
1: Those people whose homes flooded many of them didn't have flood insurance, largely because where they live is outside the regular floodplain. They didn't think they needed it. But with climate change, that map is shifting.
0: We had a once-in-every-500-year uh, flood in some areas based on the flood pl- floodplains. It was like a once-in-a-thousand-year um, flooding. Basically, we had a... Really heavy snowpack uh, that hadn't melted off as much as we expected, followed by a bunch of rain. And so um, the rivers just got really high really fast. Um, There's still like some conversations about like how much we should have known, but took out a ton of bridges in South Central Montana. um, And, you know, what most people will be familiar with is it took out a lot of roads um, into Yellowstone Park.
2: Tonight, residents are still drying out. Cell phone video shows two kids using a raft to gather below in their
0: basement filled with several feet of water
2: from the air the scope of the damage becomes clear chocolate brown water still flowing through homes ranches businesses and farmlands there are literally bridges to nowhere and a multi-million if not billion dollar cleanup
1: what the Montana floods underscore is that natural disasters are getting worse and no one is immune That's what I think the guy from FEMA was really telling us, that we've got to start doing the work ourselves because there is so much to be done. So today on the show, we're gonna explore what happens when the old disaster playbook needs an overhaul. Are we left to fend for ourselves? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. To better understand how FEMA has to adapt to a world where climate change is supercharging natural disasters, I called up the guy who used to run it.
2: My name is Craig Fugate. I currently work in the private sector doing a lot of uh, advising, but um, I served as the FEMA administrator from 2009 until the end of the Obama administration in 2017.
1: Craig is pretty widely recognized as the person who turned the agency around after its disastrous response to Hurricane Katrina. Some people might assume that when there's an emergency, like the floods in Montana, the federal government just shows up. But that's not actually how it works. I asked Craig to do a little FEMA 101.
2: FEMA doesn't step in until a governor has requested from the president a disaster declaration. And part of that request, the governor certifies in writing that the disaster exceeds the capability of the state to manage. In most cases, what that refers to is lack of insurance and FEMA being asked to support a state financially for the extraordinary cost.
1: In disasters that I have covered, I think often you see people not fully understand what FEMA helps with, what they don't help with, what you got to show. How does that process work?
2: Well, it goes back to the origination of the Stafford Act, which is the uh, legislation that FEMA operates disasters under. In the Stafford Act, Congress did not intend for it to be the primary response to disasters. Hmm. It was based upon non-duplication of benefits. The simplest thing is, if you're getting money from somewhere else, you shouldn't be getting money from FEMA. So if you've got insurance then you shouldn't have to go to, and again, when we say FEMA, let's be clear about this. This is the federal taxpayer. This you and me. You shouldn't be going to us to pay for something if you already had insurance for it, right? That's the idea of non-duplication of benefits. But FEMA is allowed to provide assistance where there is a lack of insurance or the insurance didn't cover all the losses. And this is to a certain degree what happened in Montana, uh, You know, most people said, well, I had insurance. Why was FEMA helping people if they had insurance? Well, it was a flood. And what we unfortunately find out after these events is most of the folks that have homes and they have homeowners insurance don't have flood insurance. And so when they have a damage due to floods, we see large numbers of homeowners without flood insurance, and therefore FEMA would provide some assistance. And the assistance is based upon this idea that it shouldn't just be, uh, you know, everybody's going to get the same amount. It should be based upon the need and the impacts.
1: The money has very specific eligibility requirements, like showing a deed that says you do, in fact, own a property. Only then can you get your money. And often, residents are surprised by how little FEMA pays out compared with the cost of a lot of disasters.
2: It is not designed to make people whole. They'll see that the maximum amount from the, the program that FEMA provides to individual assistance for families and individuals is around $35,000. Average person gets far less than that. And it's by household, not per adult in the household. Right. So it's a very limited program. It's not designed to do a full recovery. And it is woefully inadequate for families trying to recover from a flood if they're dependent upon a FEMA grant trying to make all their repairs.
1: Well, you're sort of getting to to where I was going next, which is how we should make sense of what's happening in Montana, because you have, you know, a, a local spokesman for FEMA essentially saying, look, you've got to manage your own recovery.
2: If you're waiting for the federal government or somebody else to help you, you know, that help may or may not come, and I'm not sure when it will come.
1: And you have residents who said, I had my house in an area that had never flooded before, that did not seem to be an historical floodplain. Why in the world would I have flood insurance? How are people supposed to, to make sense of that scenario?
2: Well, it's not easy. And what happened in Montana is happening all over the country. And increasingly, we're seeing this as we're seeing the results of climate change more extreme rainfall events, heavy rain events, historical rain events, record-setting rain events that's causing flooding in areas that have never flooded before. And too often, uh, and I i really go back to, you know, within government, this is one of the things that uh, we did was we were trying to identify uh, the higher risk areas. And Congress put a requirement on there. If you live in a high risk area for flooding, you needed to purchase flood insurance. It was called mandatory purchase and those special flood risk areas were identified in FEMA maps that are called flood insurance rate maps. And somehow the bureaucracy of the terminology got translated into from what the public heard is those are flood zones and those are flood maps. If I don't live in that flood zone, I don't have a flood risk Hmm. and I don't have to buy flood insurance. And that's not what it meant. And I think this is our problem. We have not really communicated to people that Uh, Those maps are insurance rate maps. They're not indicating where it will flood or not flood. It's just the risk is higher in those areas. And Congress requires, if you have a federally backed mortgage, you must buy flood insurance for the duration of that mortgage. It was never the intent to say people outside of that zone didn't need to buy flood insurance or that they weren't at a flood risk. It was to convey the higher risk and to protect the federally backed mortgages. And so we've got entire swaths of the country where people think or have been told or have heard that they don't live in a flood zone and they don't need flood insurance. And what it's done is it's resulted in large numbers of people that are not insured against one of the fastest growing risks that we're seeing as a result of climate change.
1: Well, I guess the question is, though, it feels like even if people were to get flood insurance, that that risk is increasing so much, right? There's a UN report showing that climate change has driven a five-fold increase in in weather-related disasters in the past 50 years. And so I wonder if even those steps of you've got to have coverage, you have to recognize that water is a threat, can that even keep up?
2: Well, from the standpoint of the National Flood Insurance Program, the answer is yes, because they're backed by Congress and Congress has provided the funding to that program when they've had payouts in excess of what they're able to generate. And that's a long going separate story. But the bottom line is damages due to rising water, which is the term they use to describe a flood, is excluded in almost everybody's homeowner policy unless you have flood insurance and pretty much. There are very few places that you can credibly say don't have a flood risk.
1: Right now, pretty much the only game in town, or only option with a reasonable price to buy flood insurance, is the National Flood Insurance Program.
2: And because over a long period of time, starting back in the 60s, as insurance got out of the flood insurance business, the federal government got in, we're only now starting to see the private sector get back, and I'd say very gingerly into flood insurance. But as long as Congress authorizes the National Flood Insurance Program, we do have a federal program to fill the gap for flood risk.
1: Even though it's in the red and has been repeatedly.
2: Well, uh, last time I checked, the federal deficit's been in the red and we still keep functioning. So as long as Congress will continue to appropriate funds to make up the shortfalls, then of all the things that are out there, it's the one thing that's available right now.
1: When we come back, why FEMA has an equity problem and how it's trying to fix it.
3: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Sick of being upsold at gyms?
0: My guy
1: FEMA changed the way it quantified risk for the first time in 50 years under a plan called Risk 2.0, the agency altered how premiums for flood insurance are set, pricing them on a much more individual level.
2: FEMA's moving in the direction of trying to price the risk by household versus just by areas to better reflect um, the risk to the home and steps people have taken to mitigate that. Uh, so that's one step. The second thing that I think FEMA has been doing for a long time. And we saw in the uh, last couple of budget cycles, a big increase is in what they call the pre-disaster mitigation programs. They call it now Building Resilient Infrastructure in Communities. But it's the idea of literally taking over a billion dollars and putting grants out to state and local governments to start looking at how they can reduce the impacts of natural hazards before they occur. People always look to FEMA and I'm like, well, FEMA is not the answer in many cases. Congress needs to act. FEMA has its authorities and it has its funding and Congress says what you can do with it. But we see other competing programs. Uh, we not actually competing, complementary programs like HUD, community block and development grants. Um, they provide in some cases after very significant disasters, uh, community block grant dollars for disasters.
1: That was something I saw happen in Puerto Rico when I covered the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Block grants were also given to local governments in Texas after Hurricane Harvey.
2: The problem is these are what I call one-offs. It's not a standard program. Um, To a certain degree, it's not even uh, authorized. Every time they do it, they have to start from scratch with rules. It delays the money getting out there. It usually takes two to three years for that money to actually make it to the states, much less to homeowners. And that's a long time if you got to home that's been flooded trying to make repairs.
1: There is another key issue here. You might have noticed that both Craig and I have been talking a lot about homeowners, and FEMA's programs are generally directed at them. But a storm or a flood doesn't care if you own or rent, and renters are even more vulnerable to the economic upheaval that can come after a disaster.
2: Renters are caught in this dynamic of They're dependent upon the people they rent from, from having the insurance, making the repairs, and be able to get back into that. But we're seeing a crisis in just rental rates going up. And what tends to happen in rental properties after disasters, either they don't get rebuilt because the owners didn't have insurance and they just sell the land and they get redeveloped to something else. Or when they rebuild it and repair it, they're now pricing it to the new value and it's pricing people out. So we're seeing, of all of the groups that are more adversely affected, uh, and in many cases not able to stay or return to their communities after flood, are the renters uh, that are being driven out when we see these types of losses. And what gets built back is generally not what you would consider affordable rental properties.
1: In New Orleans, in the decade after Katrina, rents jumped by 33%. The national average for that time Was just 6%. After a disaster, renters are often left to fend for
2: themselves. If you look at the FEMA programs, even the HUD programs, they tend to be biased towards homeowners. Renters get limited assistance, they'll get short duration rental assistance. But there's nothing really addressing the longer term issue as rents go up. How do people stay in their communities with affordable properties when they can't afford? The new cost. Well, how do they? They move. I met with the uh, CEO of Waffle House about a year after Michael hit, and he was going down uh, visiting his stores, and he was telling me one of the challenges they have is their associates, what they call their employees. Um, some of them are driving over an hour away to work at Waffle House because there's nothing in the immediate area they could rent. And those are kind of things that the data keeps piling up you look at lake charles louisiana i think they've been hit by three hurricanes when you talk to the workers there uh and again these are your uh what i would call the service industry the non skilled workforce they're being pushed out because what's getting rebuilt is much better than what they were renting and that reflects the price of those rental properties are going beyond what they can pay we are seeing a migration of renters being pushed out of communities And are either having to face driving longer distances to get to their jobs or they're relocating. And now you're starting to see the secondary effects of the workforce being impacted and the unavailability of workers. Now, this is on top of COVID and what we've seen in the Great Resignation and trouble getting workers. Now, imagine that you're in a community that you're facing uh, affordable housing as one of your uh, challenges to recruiting or retaining workers.
1: Craig says FEMA's aware that it has an equity problem and that marginalized communities have long been left out of the rebuilding process. He argues that that is starting to change.
2: Well, one step President Biden took was he asked all the agencies to go back through their programs and identify the biases uh, and try to identify why we're seeing the biases. And we already know on the top end that for FEMA, it's home ownership, is who's going to get the most money. Uh, So that immediately excludes renters. But even within home ownership, there was – I ran into this in the administration, and we had to keep doing these uh, workarounds. If you go into a lot of communities, uh, particularly historically African-American communities, uh, and this is true in the Deep South, where I'm from, people didn't always go down to the courthouse to record deed changes as members of the family died. They didn't go to attorneys and do formal estates. Right,
1: this is, I got the house from my grandma who got it from her grandma, and we all know that. So
2: you, you have a disaster, and they go apply for assistance. And FEMA goes, well, are you the owner of the home? Well, yeah. Well, where's your proof? What do you mean? Where's your deed? You know, we went, we, we went and queried the courthouse. There's no record of you owning this home. It's somebody in the past. We don't know if you're legitimately here. And in the effort of stumping out fraud, which became a big political issue after Hurricane uh, Katrina, if you can't preview your homeowner, you can't get assistance. We're talking amounts under $35,000. If there's fraud, we'll give it the justice to prosecute. But they've been living there. They got, you know, phone bills. They've got power bills. You know, their, their car registered there. Their driver's license there. Their voter registration is there. And this is not an indictment of FEMA. This is just within the federal government, you don't get rewarded for taking risk, and playing it safe is usually the best bet if you're you know civil service. The program is supposed to be equal to all, yet, the way it's administered in many cases creates inequities. And I think the FEMA team are really using this executive order from the president to get some of the root causes to eliminate them. But it's still going to be based upon primary assistance is to home ownership, less assistance to renters, and no assistance to businesses, which is what they consider somebody who leases or rents their home. And we know that a lot of rental properties are not big conglomerates. They're not investment firms. They're people that maybe retired, moved to a retirement community, but kept their home for income. They don't have a lot of resources, and when that home gets flooded and they don't have insurance, they can't fix it, so they can't keep renting it. And they end up either having to sell it at a loss or put a lot of money into it and make repairs, and now they're going to have to raise rents to cover that because it's their income source.
1: The idea of managed retreat, a whole community says, all right, we are not going to rebuild here. We're going somewhere else. It, it happened after Superstorm Sandy in some places. But what do you think?
2: It actually started as far back as 1993 and the big Midwestern floods were at time Director James Lee Witt. FEMA began Hmm. working with communities and said, you know, instead of putting you back in the river plain to flood out again, why don't we take the whole town and move it up on that hill? Again, these were small numbers, but it demonstrated that FEMA did have that ability. Florida, we've had some communities from the 80s and 90s that flooded routinely that we went in, and bought them out, moved them, and even though we've had significant floods since, we didn't flood those homes. So it is something that can be done, but there's also you know the challenges you run into. One is the historical context. We have uh, historical communities that um, if we don't rebuild, we lose that error. And so there's a lot of pressure to rebuild. Uh, some industries are very dependent upon very vulnerable coastal areas that uh, again, Workforce and housing are key. And a lot of local governments have tremendous pressure to keep communities where they're at. Hmm. But we're seeing in even in the state of Louisiana. I was going to say, you're describing the state of Louisiana. But Governor Edwards has worked with some of the communities and they made a decision on one of the uh, tribal areas that had basically because sea level rise and repetitive flooding. made the agreement to relocate the whole community. Uh, Another place is I think, going to even accelerate even more is going to be in Alaska. And the challenge in Alaska is a lot of these communities that need to relocate won't necessarily be from a federally declared disaster. But between permafrost and erosion of coastlines, we have seen communities in Alaska uh, having to relocate. Um, and and, And the question is going to be, Yeah, how do we pay for that? Uh, And not all of these events are triggering federal disasters where you at least have some of the Stafford Act funding to do this. Uh, And primarily the buyout programs are around flooding and not erosion. So that's another kind of a mismatch between what the flood insurance program has historically looked at as far as buyout and relocations uh, versus some things which may be less of flood but still involving water, and how does that equate? And again, what's the best federal program? Because some of these things are not an acute disaster. It's over a period of time. It's to, to the families involved, to the homeowners involved, to the communities, it's a disaster. But it's not something that generally the Stafford Act was designed around.
1: Thinking about this, kind of zooming out a little bit, you're making me think, I've covered a lot of disasters. People always complain about FEMA. But one thing that seems notable now, it's not that the complaint isn't, FEMA's doing a bad job in my town or FEMA isn't helping me, but it's maybe FEMA has so much to deal with that it can't meet this need or that the need is beyond the scope of what FEMA is supposed to do. Does does FEMA need to change its mission or is there... I don't know some other agency, some other plan that needs to happen
2: i think the first step is we've got to admit the system isn't designed for the frequency and severity of climate-induced weather-related disasters and there's a lot of people who say well climate's myth and i'm like record-setting weather events that are occurring on a monthly basis cannot be ignored and if nothing else whether you believe in climate change or not if we're having this many record-setting weather events that's causing massive damages the one thing we should understand is what we built for in the past isn't working today. And we got to do something different. Craig
1: Fugate, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Craig Fugate is the former FEMA administrator under President Obama. All right, that is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next? Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.